Our sermon text this morning is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19a. You can find it on page 535 in the paper Bible. But Paul, still breathing murderous threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, for behold he is praying. And, at, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands, his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Okay, well today we are continuing our study of the book of Acts that we have been uh, going through for a little while now, and we are looking particularly at the story of the conversion of Saul. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name, and I'll kind of go back and forth between both of them. Um, but this is the moment when a man who was a Pharisee from Tarsus, a man who violently persecuted Christians, a man who was determined to eradicate the religion from the face of the earth, became one of its most important and most influential followers. The moment of Paul's conversion, it's certainly a miraculous event, uh, but the events that followed are not so much. The results of his conversion are not that out of the ordinary. In fact, uh, there are millions of people alive right now whose lives have been radically changed and transformed by an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And I know everybody in this room who calls themselves a Christian. You all probably have your own unique stories of what happened uh, 
around your own conversion. And maybe some of you, if you were being honest, you'd, you'd say you weren't all that different from Paul before his conversion. Now, maybe not like literally like Paul. There's not a lot of us that were are persecutors of, of other Christians. We're not murdering people. But I think to say that there are, there are a lot of us who came from perspectives where we were decidedly against Christianity. We'd made our minds up that faith was not something for us. We were every bit as resolute in our belief that all this Christianity stuff was pretty foolish. And maybe we'd be just as, we would have been just as surprised to find ourselves like Paul changing sides. Maybe that's your story. Or maybe that describes you right now. Maybe you're that kind of skeptic this morning. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you're, you find yourself this morning in that place where, where you're willing to consider, willing to, to think about it. You wonder why so many people have found truth in the Christian faith. And, and maybe you're wondering if there might be some truth in it for you as well. Regardless of how you are this morning, regardless of where you're coming from, whether you're a believer or a skeptic or, or somewhere in the middle, um, I think this text has a lot for us. And I'm really excited to look at it because uh, this passage shows us both what might compel someone to believe, and then it also shows us the life-changing impact that faith has on everyone who does believe. And so that's where I want us to go today. I want us to study this passage and to look at Paul's conversion and see three things that played a major role in his conversion. That is the fact of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection, and the results of the resurrection. The fact, the meaning, and the result of the resurrection. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay, so let's start with the facts of the resurrection. We first met Paul a few chapters ago. If you, if you were with us, you might remember, we saw this guy uh, standing as Stephen, one of the early influential godly leaders of the church, was brutally murdered. It said that he stood by and he was approving of it. Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were a, a particular kind of Jewish leader. They were very devout. They were very committed to following the law of God. And so Pharisees, they were known for being studious. They were known for being very disciplined. They were known for following the law as close as they possibly could. But you know what they weren't known for? They weren't known for being violent. They actually weren't known for being the kinds of people who persecuted others. In fact, Paul, we know that he studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel who was known for being a pacifist. So it's kind of interesting that he is uh, so wildly violent against the church. There were other groups that were known for their violence, like the Zealots, for instance. The Zealots were known for being hostile, for, for doing wild things, but, but not the Pharisees. And some people, knowing that fact have looked at Paul and his life and, and, and they think that maybe that hostility, that anger that he showed was, was perhaps a sign of the, his own insecurity in his faith. Um, and I kind of agree with that. I, like, I think that's a, a correct idea because I see that in Christianity too. It, it always seems like the people who are most angry who are most defensive, who are most hostile towards other people's worldviews are, are the ones who feel most threatened. The people who feel least secure in their faith. And so you find 
these certain religious people don't like to, to read certain books or study a particular kind of science or they don't want to engage with certain kinds of people because they're driven by this insecurity, this fear of competing ideas. But we don't need to be that way. As Christians, especially, we don't need to be this way because if Jesus really is who he says he is, if the message is actually true, then we don't need to be defensive. We don't need to be antagonistic. In fact, it benefits us to engage other ideas. It benefits us to engage with other people and share with them the hope that we have. And it's worth noting that Paul, the kind of faith that he had as a Pharisee, this kind of angry, violent, defensive faith, is very different from the kind of man he was as a Christian. As a Christian, he was a man who openly debated people from other religions, who spoke in front of kings, and instead of being insecure, he was a person who wrote near the end of his life that he had learned how to be content in all circumstances. He was a man who was radically transformed. So how did that happen? How did he become that kind of person? Well, our passage this morning, it says right here, that this shift took place in a moment. It happened when he was confronted with the fact of the resurrection of Christ. Our passage says that Paul was on a trip to Damascus. He was rounding up Christians to persecute them. And on the way, it says, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, that was a surprise to Paul. Paul knew that he was persecuting the followers of the way. Paul knew that he was rounding up the people who were following this Jewish sect. But he did not know that he was persecuting Jesus. In fact, he believed that Jesus was dead. This story where the way that Paul finds out about the resurrection, it is certainly unique. This isn't the way it normally happens. But I want to tell you this morning that just like Paul, everyone's faith, every Christian's faith, every person's faith or lack of faith hinges upon this one fact. Did Christ rise from the dead? This week I had the opportunity to hang out with a good friend of mine who's not a believer, uh, and we had lunch. We had a lot of fun. He's a, a very thoughtful person. He's, he's well-read. And he has a lot of objections to Christianity, Christian doctrine. And so over the course of an hour and a half or so as we ate, we, we talked about some of those things. He brought up questions, and I tried to answer them. And then he tried to point out the holes and the flaws. And uh, it, was, it was a pretty interesting time. He's a, he's a really thoughtful guy. I, I appreciated the opportunity to discuss all those things with him. But as I was thinking back on that this week, I realized that there is no particular philosophy that's the linchpin of our faith. There's no particular rule 
that is the ground of everything we believe. But really, what's at the base of our faith is the resurrection. Because at the end of the day, if the resurrection occurred, then every other argument has to take a back seat. I'm sure that Saul, as a Pharisee, had a lot of objections to Christian doctrine. I bet if instead of standing and, and watching Stephen's martyrdom a few weeks ago, I bet if, if he had had the chance to engage with him, I bet Saul would have had plenty of things to, to point out, hundreds of scriptures that he could have rattled off to try to poke holes in Stephen's argument and, and his narrative that he was telling. But at the end of the day, it's hard to argue with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the end of the argument. It is, it's the mic drop moment. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then it doesn't matter what arguments you might have. You've got to pay attention to what he says, right? But how do we know? How can we possibly know if Christ really did rise from the dead? How can we be so certain? Well, I think we can. Truth be told, the resurrection is one of the most well-attested events in all of human history. Even in the book, even in, even in Scripture, it is treated not like mythology, but like a moment in time that, that, that happened in history that was widely attested and witnessed. Towards the end of this book, Paul is explaining the Christian faith before Agrippa and before Festus, the rulers at the time. And it says at the conclusion of his speech, Festus said to him, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He says, this isn't the first time you've heard of it. It might be the first time you've heard it explained, but everyone knows that this happened. This was a public event. Thirty years from the moment of the resurrection, Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians, and, he's, uh, and he says... He recounts it this way. He says, I delivered to you what I first received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Notice in the midst of that description, he says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, and most of them are still alive. He said that when he wrote the letter because he was like, don't just take my word for it. Go talk to them. There are people around who, who remember this. They will tell you what I am, I am sharing with you is true. Think about that. A 30-year window. 30 years ago was, uh, what, 1989. 1989, 
the, the Berlin Wall fell down. That was a big event. If you are alive, hopefully you, you remember some of those things. But now suppose today a historian said the Berlin Wall fell down when Ronald Reagan flew over there and did a roundhouse kick and kicked it down, ending communism forever. Now, now, despite how some people may have started to deify Ronald Reagan in certain areas of our culture, nobody would believe that story, right? People say, no, I know that didn't happen because I was alive back then. I saw it. I, I, I saw the news reports. That's not, that is not a fact. Well, it's the same with in, in Paul's day. Paul couldn't just go around claiming that Christ rose from the dead and 500 people saw it. He said, these people were here. Go talk to them. It's an attested fact. And here's something else to consider. Uh, Jesus wasn't the only messianic revolutionary of his time. There were other people who made those same kind of claims. Even in this book, a few got mentioned back in Acts chapter 6. But what was true of those revolutionary leaders, and not just them, but, but all the ones that came before and after, these movements, after their leaders died, the movements pretty quickly dried up. But not with Christianity. Christianity is the, the only movement where the opposite of that happened. No matter how skeptical you might be of the Christian faith, you cannot argue with the fact that for whatever reason, within a very short period of time, within just a few years of Christ's death, his number of followers went from just a handful to thousands. And those thousands of people, they didn't call him rabbi. They didn't call him a good teacher. But they believed that he was the resurrected Son of God. Even the most cynical scholars agree with that, and they don't know what to do with it. It's hard to argue with those facts of history. It's hard to explain them. There's not a rational argument that can tell you why masses of people would suddenly believe an impossible thing happened. That a man rose from the dead. People didn't rise from the dead back then, just like they don't rise from the dead now. There's no good explanation for that. Unless it happened. So if you look at Paul and you see this story and you think, man, I wish I could just have that kind of certainty. I wish I could just know for a fact, like he did, that Christ had risen. Let me ask you, what more do you want? What more proof do you need? The history attests to it. Even today, there are billions of people who claim to know Christ as their Savior and more coming to know Him every single day. And if that's not enough for you, all of history is divided in half by this moment. Couldn't it be possible that it's true. When Paul came to this realization, when he recognized the fact of the resurrection, it changed everything. That's the first point. But it's not just the fact of the resurrection that, that hit him. It was the meaning of the resurrection. As our passage goes on, it says, Paul asks, Who are you, Lord? 
And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So Paul took, had these three days where he was blind. Three days where he was fasting and praying. And during that time, he had a lot to think about. He had a lot to, to consider. He had a lot to try and make sense of as he sat there. Now, Paul was an impressive person, to say the least. Paul was uh, a pretty amazing guy. Maybe, maybe you know some people kind of like this. I think everybody in their life encounters some impressive people every now and then. Uh, one, of, one, one person for me was the valedictorian of my high school. I remember this, uh, this woman, she just seemed like she had everything. She got straight A's in all of her classes. All the teachers loved her. She aced the SATs. I really think she got a perfect score. On top of that, she was a state champion swimmer. And she was a normal, nice person. She was nice to people. People actually liked being around her. And me, as a person who, who struggled to, to have a, a decent conversation with anybody, who had to stay after school to get tutored in algebra, my whole sports career just consisted of me coming off the bench to participate in someone else's highlight reel. It was, it was pretty intimidating to see these kinds of people. They always kind of mystified me. And Paul, Paul is beyond even that. Paul is in a category all his own. Later on in his life, when he's reflecting back on what his life was before he came to faith, here's how he remembers himself. Here's how he describes himself. He said, if anybody has a reason to boast, I had more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, Paul, according to his standard of living, was an absolute success. He had done everything right. According to the, his worldview, he was an upright and righteous man. And this moment, encountering the resurrected Christ, it changed everything for him. I kind of like thinking about those three days of blindness. Imagining what it must have been like for him to sit there and think through all the scripture that he knew so well. All those things that he had studied so intensely his entire life. And then to try to come to grips with the fact that he had seen Jesus Christ resurrected and what that might really mean. 
what would it have meant for him to realize that this guy, Jesus, who was really close in age to him, that he was not just some teacher, but that he was God in the flesh. All of a sudden, those scriptures that he read, they must have been just coming together in a way that he had never thought of before. Changing the way he had lived his entire life, everything he had based himself upon. I, I think of like the, the Magic Eye posters. Remember those? Those, those, those like weird patterns and, and you stare at them and then when your eye comes into focus in just the right way, all of a sudden it clicks and you can see this cohesive picture that you, you couldn't even tell was there before. All of a sudden, the, the scriptures that Paul had been studying start to make one cohesive message. One of those scriptures Paul uses later in Romans, Psalm 14. It said, there is, it says that the Lord is looking around the earth, looking for anybody who he can find who is righteous, anybody who's good, anybody who's upright, like Paul thought he was. And the psalmist tells us, God finds no one. There is no one righteous. Not even one. See, what the death and resurrection of Jesus meant was that no one on earth was good enough to be holy. Not even Paul. It, it means that despite our best efforts to live a good and righteous life, to be a good person, there's no such thing. Isaiah says that all of our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, like used up dirty garments. Scripture tells us that because of our sin, we are, are separated from the God who created us. Because of our unholiness and our unrighteousness, we are hopelessly cut off from the holy God who created us, who designed our souls for relationship with Him. But Jesus changes it all. See, Jesus coming, it means that God actually loves His people too much to leave us there. He loves us too much to leave us behind in our unrighteousness. And so instead of destroying us for our crimes against Him, instead of wiping us out because of our corruption, He came to stand in our place. He came to be our substitute. God the Son took on flesh so that He could be righteous when we could. And on the cross... He took the punishment for our sin. Death. He got what we deserved. But not just death, right? He didn't simply die. If, if He only died, that would be the end of it. We wouldn't be here right now. But we're here today. We're here on Easter because not only did He die, but He rose again. And when Christ rose from the dead, that was the proof. That was the sign that, that everything He had done was for a purpose. That He uh, absorbed the wrath of God. That He had made a way to God for everybody who trusts in Him. So in these days of darkness, while Paul is praying and fasting, he's coming to, to realize that his life, his life that seemed so together 
to everybody on the outside. That his belief that he really was a good person who God would just accept based on his own merit, he realized that he had fallen far short. That what he thought of as being a good person was actually nothing close. That his heart was corrupt. And all this time when he'd been trying to follow the law and save himself through his own effort and his own good deeds, he was actually just moving himself further and further away from his Savior. See, the resurrection means that the only way to be good is not by keeping the rules, it's not by conforming to some certain standard, but it is by first admitting that on our own, we have nothing to offer. It's when we see that deep down inside, we're a wreck. And the things that we're resting on, the things that we're trusting in, the things that we're hoping will fulfill us or that we can base our life upon, the things that we think will make us happy, they can't. The resurrection means that God came to save us because we are hopeless apart from Him. And it's only when we believe that. It's only when we actually give up on our own goodness that we're ever going to find what we're looking for. It's like those first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who come to God empty-handed, knowing that they have nothing to offer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the meaning of the resurrection. It means we cannot save ourselves. And the last thing that plays a role in Paul's conversion is the result of the resurrection. So as Paul's sitting there, as he's praying, we read that, that God speaks to another man, this man, Ananias. And he tells him to go and find Paul. And for good reason, Ananias doesn't like that idea. Paul's been murdering Christians like him. But God assures him that it's going to be okay. He says, I have called Saul, I have a purpose for Saul, and I've already shown Saul how much he will have to suffer for my name. So Ananias goes, and when he finally gets there, it says that he, he lays his hands on him and he begins to pray. And the first words that he speaks to Paul are extremely profound. Do you remember what they were? He says, Saul, my brother. That's a big deal. Because all that time, as Paul was praying, as he was fasting, as he was trying to unpack and understand what the resurrection meant, there were just a few words echoing in his head. It was those words that Jesus had spoken to him. Why are you persecuting me? In those words, there's a profound truth. Why are you persecuting me? Right? Paul, he thought he was persecuting the followers of the way. Paul thought he was persecuting these heretics. 
But what Jesus said in that little sentence, in that little question, He told him something else entirely. He told him that, that there is no distinction between Christ and His followers. He said, we are one in the same. And that is the essence of the Gospel. Do you know? That is the core of the Gospel message. Union with Christ. It's not just that when you put faith in Jesus, your, your sins are forgiven. That is true. It's not just that when you repent and trust Jesus as your Savior, His Holy Spirit comes and starts to transform your life and, and make you more like Him. That is true. It's not just that, that Christ's death on the cross can reconcile you to God so you can know and have a relationship with Him. That is true. But at the core of the Gospel is this simple idea that you are made one with Christ. That we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writing, he says... I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. See, that little idea, that little thought that Christ put in Paul's head at that moment when He said, why are you persecuting me? That idea of union with Christ, that is the idea that Paul would spend the rest of his life unpacking. And I don't want us to leave this service without at least understanding the beginning of that. The resurrection, it's a fact of history. It's hard to deny it. And it has a deep theological meaning that we should understand, but if you can't get all that stuff in here in this short period of time, that's okay. The one thing that looms over it all, the one thing I want us to understand is that the people who turn to Jesus for salvation, they're not simply saved by Him, but we are in Him. We're in Christ. Second Corinthians, Paul says, God made Jesus who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that if you are in Christ, God sees you as perfect. Not because you've earned it. Not because you are a, a quote-unquote good person. But because you haven't earned it. Because you've realized that you can't earn it. But instead, you've seen your corruption. You've admitted your need for Him, and you have surrendered. For the rest of Paul's life, he would unpack that mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery that, that God through Jesus, is uniting all things in Him. And in light of that truth, I just think it's so cool that, that when this guy comes to pray for him, the first thing he says is, my brother. It was proof. It was proof that these guys aren't strangers. They're united. They're connected forever. And when that started to click, 
When that, when that truth hit home with him, it tells us that the scales fell off his eyes. He was no longer blinded by his self-righteousness. He was no longer blinded by his own false idea of what goodness was. Instead, he had surrendered and he was united with Christ. So what about you? Do you see Christ this morning? Do you see your own weakness? Do you see your need? Or are you still holding on to something? Are you still holding on to your goodness? Well, let's pray that God would once again expose that. That He would show us our false righteousness and instead bring us to the glory of His resurrected Son. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the good news of the resurrection. I thank You for its deep meaning that we could not possibly unpack in 30 minutes. I thank You that You have sent Paul before us and shown us what it looks like to spend a life savoring these truths. Lord, I want to pray for anybody who's here in this room this morning who might be thinking maybe it's time for them to believe. Lord, I pray that You'd give them the faith to take that first step. I pray You'd give them the faith to admit that they're empty-handed and that they have nothing to bring to You. I pray, Lord, that You would save them through Your Son, Jesus Christ. That You would unite us all in Him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.